Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, the platform agnostic workspace solutions provider, and also Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads our users are located. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. This week, Microsoft published a pretty detailed blog post on the SolarWinds hack that is being called SolariGate or Sunburst. At the time of this recording, there is no specifics on how the attacker gained access to inject the code, though they do say it occurred as early as October 2019, which lines up pretty well with the FTP credentials getting exposed. It may not be the in that they used to inject the code, but I'm just putting it out there that an eagle-eyed researcher found the credentials that were exposed in November 2019, so it is possible. While that detail is still missing, there are more details on how intricate and sophisticated the attack was from that point forward, from the point they got in to how they injected the code and what they did to fly below the radar and make sure they're able to have as wide a spread as possible. I went through the entire post by Microsoft and tried to get a detailed but trimmed down synopsis for the sake of the podcast but it is difficult to do it full justice. So I will keep it short as possible, but I encourage everyone to read the full article for yourselves. It's really fascinating. But the point of interest to me include the fact that the injected code was about 4,000 lines long that allowed the threat actor behind the attack to operate unfettered in the compromised networks. Even at 4,000 lines of code, they stated the inserted malicious code is lightweight and only has the task of running a malware added method in a parallel thread such that the DLL's normal operations are not altered or interrupted in any way. So essentially, it's business as usual. The application functions and appears to be operating as usual. So they kept it very well below the radar. The method used is part of a class, which the attackers named Orion Improvement Business Layer to blend in with the rest of the code. The class contains all the backdoor capabilities, comprising 13 subclasses and 16 methods, with strings obfuscated to further hide the malicious code. Once loaded, it said the backdoor goes through an extensive list of checks to make sure it's running in an actual enterprise network and not on an analyst's uh, single machine, for example. It then contacts a command and control server, which is called a C2 server, using a subdomain generated partly from information gathered from the affected devices. In fact, the article states that it generates some URIs per device. So it's per domain, but then the per device piece is a dynamic segment of the name that's randomized per device that the code is run on. This is another way the attackers try to evade detection. 
As reported on the podcast last week, the attackers inserted malicious code into the solarwinds.orion.core.businesslayer.dll, a code library belonging to the SolarWinds Orion platform. The attackers had to find a suitable place in this DLL component to insert their code. Ideally, they would choose a place in a method that gets invoked periodically, ensuring both execution and persistence so that malicious code is guaranteed to be always up and running. And as it turns out, they found the perfect location in a method named refresh interval. The code was being called via an innocent looking initialize function. Really interestingly, as I stated a little earlier, they were generating these unique identifiers per device for the URI. If communication was then successful, the C2 server, that command server, responds with an encoded compressed buffer of data containing commands for the back door to execute. The C2 might also then respond with information about an additional C2 address to report to. Again, layers to help evade detection and make it very difficult to reverse engineer and figure out what's going on. The code allowed for commands that would allow the attackers to run, stop, and enumerate processes, read, write, and enumerate files and registry keys, collect and upload information about the device, and restart the device, wait, or exit. The command collect system description retrieves some information like the local computer domain name, administrator account SID, host name, username, OS version, system directory, device uptime, and information about the network interfaces. Once backdoor access was obtained, the attackers could follow the standard playbook of privilege escalation exploration, credential theft, and lateral movement hunting for high-value accounts and assets. As covered last week, the domain avsvmcloud.com was being used. Now, Microsoft did take control of the domain like I reported last week and hopefully helped stem the flow and also gather information to inform those who have been breached. Kim Zetter, who had an excellent rundown that I covered on the podcast last week, suggested another victim, FireEye, who I reported on two weeks ago, and it wasn't necessarily clear if this story was linked or not, but FireEye, in their breach, noticed that a security system sent an alert to an employee and to the company's security team, notifying that a new device had just been registered to the company's MFA system, as if it belonged to an employee. And that's what prompted FireEye to investigate. And I thought that was worth pointing out because I've seen a lot of articles and people online pointing out that like this is such a sophisticated attack. This isn't your run-of-the-mill, someone had a simple password that was easily grabbed and logged in with. But unfortunately, even though this is a very in-depth article that goes through what they did once they were able to inject the code in, it still doesn't cover how they got in to inject that code. It could come down to something as simple as that SolarWinds1234 or SolarWinds123, I can't remember exactly, but that password being exposed on the FTP servers and possibly even the files that are used for updating the product being exposed on that FTP server with that password. It was confirmed that with the password and the credentials, there was write access to the FTP server. Of course, that's all still speculation, like I pointed out last week, but it'll be very interesting to see how they were able to inject that code in. I still find it a little worrying that they're saying that it's as early as October 2019, 
I mean, I've worked for some pretty large vendors. They tend to keep pretty strict change control on new releases and keep archives of every major and minor release. So they should be able to go through and see, you know, which minor version release or which major version release contains that 4,000 lines of code first. That should give an idea at least of when that code was injected in that potentially was the cause of these SolarWinds customers becoming exposed. But that doesn't seem to be forthcoming right now. So I'm sure that will come out in time. We'll just have to keep following the story. Speaking of Microsoft in this Laura gate or sunburst, I can't really say the first one, so I'll call it sunburst from now on. Um, but Reuters reported at the end of last week that Microsoft are one of the affected parties and the extent of their breach and what that could mean for the company and potentially for Microsoft customers has not yet been revealed. Microsoft did release a short statement saying, quote, like other SolarWinds customers, we have been actively looking for indicators of this actor and can confirm that we detected malicious SolarWinds binaries in our environment, which we isolated and removed. We have not found evidence of access to production services or customer data. Our investigations, which are ongoing, have found absolutely no indications that our systems were used to attack others." End quote. Now there's already a long list of others who have detected this DLL with the malicious code in their environments. And that includes the likes of the US Treasury Department, the US Department of Commerce's National Telecommunications and Information Administration, the Department of Health's National Institutes of Health, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, the US Department of State, the National Nuclear Security Administration, the US Department of Energy, three of the United States, three of the actual states in the US, the city of Austin, and also The Verge have reported that some big names in our industry have made the list, including Cisco, Intel, Nvidia, Belkin, and just like Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, and Nvidia, VMware have also made the list. And VMware, like Microsoft, have also released this short statement. Quote, while we have identified limited instances of the vulnerable SolarWinds Orion software in our own internal environment, our own internal investigation has not revealed any indication of, of exploitation. End quote. They also state that this has been confirmed by SolarWinds' own investigation to date. So it'd be interesting to hear more details on how SolarWinds are going about their investigation into what's happening with their customers. Of note, VMware have also denied that recent vulnerabilities in some of their products were a result of this hack. And because this story has legs, ZDNet this week reported about a second hacking group targeting SolarWinds systems. Details about this second threat actor are still scarce, but security researchers don't believe this second entity is related to the suspected Russian government-backed hackers who breached SolarWinds to insert the malware inside its official Orion app. This attack was different. Reports from GuidePoint, Semantic, and Palo Alto Networks detailed how attackers were also planting a .NET web shell named Supernova, with the suspect DLL in this case being app underscore web underscore logo image handler dot ashx dot b sixty thirty one eighty nine six dot DLL. 
According to a post on GitHub by Microsoft security analyst Nick Carr, the supernova web shell appears to be planted on SolarWinds Orion installations that have been left exposed online and been compromised with exploits similar to a vulnerability that's being tracked as CVE-2019-8917. So a vulnerability that's been out there for some time. Unlike the Sunburst DLL, the Supernova DLL was not signed with the legitimate SolarWinds digital cert. This and some other characteristics lead experts to believe that this is less sophisticated and thus is the result of a second gang rather than those responsible for the previously reported hack. And I guess sticking with this spiral into the darkness that we seem to be on, BleepyComputer.com this week reported that the U.S. Department of Justice has seized two domain names used to impersonate the official websites of biotechnology companies Moderna and Regeneron, who are involved in the development of the COVID-19 vaccines. While almost perfectly cloning the contents of the real sites, the websites seized by the federal government were instead used for various malicious purposes, including running scams, infecting visitors with malware, and collecting sensitive information and phishing attacks. A government representative said, quote, individuals visiting those sites now see a message that the site has been seized by the federal government and be redirected to another site for additional information, end quote. By seizing these sites, the government has prevented third parties from acquiring the names and using them to commit additional crimes, as well as prevented third parties from continuing to access the sites in their present form. So another classic example of phishing. HPE have disclosed a zero day in their Systems Insight Manager software for Windows and Linux. BleepingComputer.com reports, that it's tracked as CVE-2020-7200 and affects the 7.6.x version. This vulnerability was rated by HPE as critical in severity, so 9.8 out of 10, so pretty high up there. And it allows attackers with no privileges to exploit it as part of low complexity attacks that don't require user interaction. The vulnerability results from the lack of proper validation of user supplied data that can result in the deserialization of untrusted data, making it possible for an attacker to leverage it to execute code on servers running the vulnerable software. HPE did not disclose in the security advisory if the zero day bug is also being exploited in the wild or not. While HPE SIM, which is the product, comes with support for both Linux and Windows, at this time, HP has only released mitigation steps for those running on the Windows systems. And unfortunately, there is no patch available as of this recording. If you, if you are running the Windows version, the mitigation is relatively simple. It involves like stopping a service, deleting a .war file, and then also running a command. Uh, I'm not going to read out the specifics because the commands are a little bit difficult. Very simple to copy and paste and run, but difficult to read out on an audio-only podcast. So I'll share a link to this article, which is on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 156. 
BleepyComputer.com also reported this week that about a dozen Dell Weiss ThinClient models are vulnerable to critical issues that could be exploited by a remote attacker to run malicious code and gain access to arbitrary files. The vulnerabilities in this case are being tracked as CVE-2020-29492 and 29491. And they exist in the components of ThinOS, the operating system that's used on the Dell Weiss Thin clients. Security researchers at CyberMDX found that FTP access is possible with no credentials using an anonymous user. They also discovered that only the firmware and packages are signed, leaving INI configuration files as a possible way for a malicious actor to do some damage. Their head of research says that there is also a specific INI file on the FTP server that should be writable for the connecting clients. And since there are no credentials, essentially anyone on the network can access the FTP server and modify that INI file holding the configurations for thin clients. Unfortunately, protecting the FTP connection with credentials would not be enough under the current design because the username and password would be shared across the entire fleet of thin clients. The researchers explain that a WISE device connects to the FTP server, it looks for the INI file that holds its configuration, which would be named after the username used in the terminal. And with this file being writable, an attacker can plant a malicious version to control the configuration received by a specific user on the network. So Dell has released ThinOS 9.x to address these issues, however, some effective models can no longer be upgraded, and those include WISE 3020, WISE 3030 LT, WISE 5010, WISE 5040 AIO, WISE 5060, and WISE 7010. Given the severity of this issue, if you're running those old devices, it's just safer to get rid of those as soon as possible. Time to upgrade. Microsoft have issued a statement on a reported issue with CheckDisk on some Windows 10 machines. They state, quote, a small number of devices that have installed this update have reported that when running CheckDisk slash F for force, their file system might get damaged and the device might not boot, end quote. The issue has now been resolved according to Microsoft for all non-managed devices, although it might take up to 24 hours for the fix to self-propagate to all affected devices. If you want to speed up the process and prioritize the deployment of the fix on your device, you can also just restart any potentially impacted devices. They say for enterprise managed devices that have installed this update and encountered the issue, it can be resolved by installing and configuring a special group policy. And I'll share a link to that policy with this episode too. They say there's mitigation available on devices that are unable to boot after running the check disk. And this is essentially booting into a recovery console and running some commands. And I'll share that in the same article with this episode, which again is episode 156. And you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links or alternatively in the description field on your podcast platform of choice. The register reports that GitHub will be removing password authentication for Git operations. And I think I covered this on a previous episode, to be honest, but I'll cover it again. So obviously this is not going to affect you logging into GitHub on the web. This is just for the CLI. And from next summer, they will require token-based authentication for all authenticated API operations on github.com. 
The requirement will be extended to all Git-related command line interactions, desktop apps that use Git, and software or services Git repositories on GitHub via password. To prepare GitHub users, the Cloud Code Storage Service has scheduled two brownouts on July 28th and 30th ahead of that August 13th, 2021 deadline. For a few hours, they intend to disable support for password authentication. Git operations tied to passwords will fail during these planned outages, which the company hopes will remind developers to get their houses in order. This week, Forbes had a nice write-up on Microsoft's Tab Sleep feature for Edge, which could potentially help you save from having tabs chewing away your system's resources. I covered this on a previous episode of the podcast, but figured it was worth pointing out this article as a really good recap. The sleeping tabs capability is available to people running Edge beta version 88 as an experiment. If you don't want to use the capability, you can do this by toggling off the feature in settings under edge colon slash slash settings slash system. It's available to all users from January 2021. Edge 88 also includes password security alerts to show if your credentials have been exposed in a breach. So some of the features that are already there in Chrome, but also some features that may make this more resource efficient than Chrome. So it'll be a good release for all of us to try out. On last week's episode of the podcast, I talked about the announcement by Citrix of their new service continuity feature for Citrix Cloud. That means if your cloud service goes down, be it Google Cloud Platform, Azure, AWS, or whatever, Citrix will keep working. I speculated it might be like some super cool new local host cache mode type feature, but I was way off by the sounds of things. It is still somewhat of an insurance policy in case things fall over like local host cache mode, but it is very different. It's even very different to the current connection leasing. So the details were kind of scarce last week when I recorded the podcast, but this article gives a lot more information. Uh, including that service continuity is not a new feature or a new protocol. It is just an innovative approach to building their products in Citrix Cloud, adding design for failure into their Citrix virtual apps and desktop service architecture. They say the change is based off of key learnings from scaling and servicing CVAD for thousands of customers over the years and striving to provide customers with more nines. They say that the way they broker connections has evolved. Instead of gaining authorization to access a resource and subsequently connecting to such a resource, service continuity decouples the two stages so that they do not have to be executed synchronously. They say service continuity is designed to remove the dependency on the availability of the components involved in the connection process. And that means that users can still launch their virtual apps and desktops regardless of the cloud services health status. And even if Citrix workspace service is down or the cloud broker is down, even if your internet is down, you'll be able to launch the resources that you need. They say that the pillar of this service continuity effort is a new type of .ICA file called Workspace Connection Lease, or CL for short. So I guess instead of ICA, it's CL. This uses long-lived authorization tokens, caching every entitlement that is published to the user, coupled with information on the resource location. The cache tokens are good for up to 30 days. 
They say a substantial portion of the security architecture of service continuity is based on public key cryptography without relying on a public key infrastructure. The CLs are signed by Citrix Cloud, are user and device bound, and the sensitive payload in the CLs is encrypted, which means the CLs cannot be tampered with or viewed by unauthorized entities. Citrix explains how this new type of ICA together with some other innovations ensures not only retaining functionality, but even being able to enumerate applications as if nothing had changed. And they point out that this will actually be more reliable than their current on-premises offering. It'd be interesting to see. So like one example they give is, you know, it'll work even if your internet is down, but it's provided that users still have network connection to a resource location. So I guess that's kind of like internet down, but like limited access. So you could still get to internal resources. So if it's an internal resource and your internet's down, you'll be able to continue to function. It's a pretty interesting idea. And it sounds like they've thought about the security. My initial reaction was, well, I mean, if it's just using cache resources on a machine that's good for 30 days and someone gets access to a machine and just takes it away, that doesn't sound like it's all that secure, but it sounds like security was a main part of the thinking and the development too. It'd be really interesting to try this out. A heads up to any Citrix customers out there. It was reported pretty widely on Twitter and the first I saw was Daniel. So kudos, Daniel, for pointing this one out. But it looks like there's a denial of service attack taking place across Citrix ADCs. Now, Daniel has a list of IP addresses that seem to be used in the targeting. So if you want to do filtering, you could start there. But Citrix eventually issued some guidance too and confirmed a fix that others had discovered. And it's kind of a workaround, not really a fix, but it seems to be occurring over the EDT for UDP feature on the uh, gateway. So you can run the command set VPN V server with your VPN V server name, then space dash DTLS space off to disable EDT and stop the denial of service attack. Hopefully there'll be more information on this in the future. And last bit of news for this week, but Group Rumio, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the podcast, which is this really insane platform for doing kind of video conferencing, web conferencing, but it's very different. So there's spatial audio, meaning it's kind of like if you're in a building and you walk down the hall and you go to two colleagues and you have a conversation. Well, if you walk back down the hall, you don't hear the conversation anymore. So you can have multiple conversations going on within one web conference and people can go from circle to circle and mingle so it'd be ideal for christmas parties and group rumio are offering the service now for christmas parties so if your office wants to have a virtual christmas party on christmas eve maybe as you're wrapping up for the holiday you should really check out group rumio and i'll share a link to that with this episode and now this episode scripts tricks and tips Matthias Schlimm shared a recent webinar that was recorded where he goes through sealing, personalizing, and automating your Windows virtual desktop images. So that could be one of the challenges if you're going from something like um, PVS, for example, to Windows virtual desktop. It could take a while to get your head around some of the Windows virtual desktop image management features are what you have to do. 
Some of it's a little closer to different imaging technologies or even some of the physical desktop imaging technologies that are out there. So you want to check that out. And obviously the base image script framework that Matthias has created is excellent for your sealing process too. So you should check that out and check out this video. Nick A. Callen had a really great but short blog post on ntuser.dat and the last updated timestamp and how to try to figure out the last time a profile was used. So he goes through saying kind of why that is a challenge to actually figure out when the last time a profile was truly used and goes through some of the methodology he used for achieving that. And it's pretty short, he keeps things very concise. So it's one worth checking out for your own learning. Thorsten again shared something really great. He's full of really helpful tips on his Twitter, so you should really check him out. That's ENDI24 on Twitter. Um, but he shared a Windows Update Management tool that can help you manage updates of Microsoft products on your Windows operating systems. He uses this WU Agent API to identify, download, and install missing updates and check the recently installed updates with the graphical UI. So personally, in the past, I've been using SECM in my home lab for doing my patching. I've just set up some ADRs that takes care of the patching and I have automated reboots included. But I've been thinking about switching to an alternative. So this is one possible alternative for me. So thanks for sharing that, Thorsten. And for a little bit of shameless self-promotion, this week I posted a blog on the Algus Technology website, algus-technology.com, on application packaging and delivery 2020 and 2021. So it's kind of a state of the union on application packaging and delivery technologies or products. And I go through each one and give my opinion on which ones were the best and the best maybe for 2021. And also some of the nuances because some products have evolved from, you know, more traditional application virtualization, just virtualizing that application and then delivering that app to desktops or to terminal servers or whatever into actual like cloud hosted solutions for actually packaging and delivering the application. So it's been getting a pretty good response. Thanks to all those who have read it. If it's in something that interests you, um, check it out and I'll share the link. And something else I was involved in. <laughs> Last week, I was on the Liquidware Unplugged event going through predictions for 2021 and beyond. That recording is now available and I'll share a link to that too. And one last shameless self-promotion, but I was invited to guest host an episode of the Frontline Chatter podcast where we interviewed Tobias Creedle, who is a Citrix community legend and he recently retired last year. He had a really long and storied career, so we get to talk a little bit about his career and the different trends that he experienced throughout it. And he gave some really great advice that I've taken to heart since recording that episode. It's one that you should really check out. It's very interesting as a retrospective and also just for getting some advice from someone who's been there and done that. There were some really great documents released by Microsoft recently on tiered Active Directory and protecting privileged access plus how Microsoft 365 is protected from on-premises attacks. It's definitely one worth checking out. And kind of in the vein of security, this week I posted a poll on my Twitter asking what everyone's favorite password manager product is. Um, I then went through the list and took the three most mentioned password managers and put them in a poll. And uh, the results are 
there for all to see. You can see the results in the YouTube edition of this episode, episode 156, or you can find the link with this episode. And on that topic, if you go to devsecninja.com, there's an article on finding the ultimate password manager that actually goes through some of the decision-making and comparing of um, some of the bigger products. And two of the products mentioned are some that others mentioned and I included in my poll. So it complements the poll very nicely to read that blog post. And finally for this week, the awesome Ed Bot also had an article with seven steps you can take to lock down your Microsoft account and keep it safe from outside attackers. So that also kind of complements things pretty well from a security perspective. You should probably get a password manager tool. I've provided some information in an article to figure out which one would be the best to use. And also these steps for uh, locking down your Microsoft account and ways to authenticate onto your Windows machines and keep it safe. I'm going to post a security-related blog for the first time on my site, RoryMon.com, in the near future, so keep an eye out for that, too. Well, that's it for another week. For all those who have off at this time of year, I'd like you to wish you happy holidays and just tell you to enjoy that time off because it's way too scarce and you've earned it. Thanks, everyone.